0: Well, we're going to close our series today, week seven of the I Am Sayings series. And this week we're on to I Am the Vine in John 15. And I've given this a subtitle. It's not on my slide, but I've given it a subtitle because it thematically frames what I'm going to say. And it's what the Lord showed me as a contextual situation with Jesus and his disciples. Subtitle is this, When People Walk Out. Now, you may have experienced people walk out of your life painfully, or you may have experienced a painful walk out yourself. But I I don't want to, as it were, look too much at the darkness of that. I want to look at the light of what Jesus brings to a context when people walk out on him. Okay, what I saw in the text as I studied it. When I was doing... um, my master's degree, I learned of a phrase, a word I've never heard of before, but apparently it's a word, and I use it occasionally, and it's the word prolegomena. It's got two Greek words in it. Pro is that the idea of before, and logomena is rooted in the idea of the word lego, where all the words like biology, geology, and so on, it's got the word logos in it. So it's the, the logos word in there is the speaking part, and the pro is the before. So before I speak, is what it means. It's the before speak. It's where you say what you're going to say before you say what you're really going to say. And the reason I'm going to bring this before speak is because it's important to lay a foundation before we read from John 15. It's really important to understand what's going on because the danger of what we're about to do is you often read backwards into the text from where we are now and try and get your ideas that way. And frankly... And by the way, I'm just going to stop my preaching right now and just ask you to give a clap to Iris Rebecca Lake. And Andrew and Quinta. it's great having you on the front row. And you've done well to get to church. Well done. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Sorry if I dropped on. That was a bit startling, wasn't it? Mid-flow. Apologies. I think they look all right. They, they survived that randomness. <laughs> Steve Random, Kerry. See, John 15 needs a before speak because the danger with what we're going to do now is we're going to re- we could easily read backwards into the text and try and understand it that way around. Really, the, the understanding of the Bible has to come across a bridge this way from the text to the now. So we call hermeneutics. Understand it's the science of interpreting the Bible. How do I get from what was said to the original audience to my context now and how do I apply it to my life? If we go the wrong way down the bridge, we're snookered. And a lot of people do that with the John 15. They read it from a horticultural perspective, the vine dresser and look into first century vine dressing and what could it possibly mean? And oh no, branches are cut off and they're burned and does that mean we go to hell? Does that mean I'm, it's, my, it's my salvation at risk? And I just think some of those contextual, some of those, speaking of the context of the text rather than the context of the hearing audience, you just end up down a rabbit hole of distraction. It's so important to go from the text to now and if we go from the text to now we see that Jesus is in a meal with his friends fully cognizant of the fact that he's about to be butchered but trying to give his team a pep talk so that they can cope with the trauma of what's about to come. And so he's in a context of a Passover meal as we know and we're there in chapter 13 and he's washing the disciples feet and he's predicting Peter's Calamitous failure, and he's pointing prophetically his finger at the one who would betray him, dipping his bread in the same dip, dish. The one who I dip my bread in, this this dish with, he's the one who's going to betray me, it's you. And so this is a traumatic moment for the disciples. They are looking eye to eye with their saviour, who they know is special, They know he's their master. Peter's just said, I'll die, I'll die for you. I mean, how many people say that? I'll I'll die for you. How many people have said that to you? It's a a context where it's really heightened emotions, and Jesus is speaking eyeball to eyeball with people who love him. John's leaning on his chest. Who's who's the one who's going to betray your Lord? Showing him love. And Jesus is trying to help them with so much in such a short time. I'm going away. You can't follow me. I'm going to abandon you guys, but I'm going to send the comfort of the Spirit. I won't leave you as orphans, John 14, 18. I will come to you in the form of the comforter. Who's the comforter? Can you imagine this washing over them really quickly as he's trying to download in one evening all the things that are coming because what we call the farewell discourse, chapters 14 to 17 of John's gospel, has distilled into them amazing teaching from Jesus to show them how to survive the storm. He's really lovingly trying to help his friends survive. What does that relate to in terms of understanding John 15? Well, let me read to stay on track. The turbulence of last week's teaching on John 14, the narrative there has a problem with Peter getting distressing words that he, the Rock, Peter the Rock Johnson, It's going to betray Jesus. And also the broad notion that Jesus was about to abandon them. It's all there in this moment. That's where we are. In addition to this trauma, Jesus also, as I've said, identifies the betrayer in the midst, dipping his bread with Judas to point that prophetic finger at the disciple. We're in a part of scripture that is filled with walkouts It's filled with walkouts. And let me say this, whenever that happens, Satan is not far from the scene as he seeks to divide and conquer God's people. Walkouts are usually a product of intense demonic activity. In John 14, 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Simon, sorry, Satan entered him. That's very powerful language, isn't it? Satan entered Judas. So we have a Judas walk out. We have Jesus talking about walking out. We have Peter predicting the one who would be walking out of the team, denying Jesus. And then, with their ears ringing from prophetic teachings and warnings, the disciples walk out towards the garden. All of this turbulence in chapters 13 and 14 then comes to a sudden stop. And this is why we need the, the before speak at the end of chapter 14, seemingly closing the farewell discourse. Did you know that the Bible is made up of found fragments? Did you know that? And so we don't actually know the order of the farewell discourse. We don't know what order it came in. And something that's of interest to you, or maybe of interest to you, is that the end of 14, chapters 14, verse 31, seems to link to chapter 18, verse 1. It's almost as if chapters 15, 16, and 17 have been inserted in by an editor to illustrate the conversations that have gone before, the trauma that has gone before, the challenge that has gone before. Now, before you get a little bit waning in your confidence in God's word, knowing that editors have had their hand on it, let me say to you that the Spirit has supervised the editing of the text. The Holy Spirit... Crafted the scriptures, and you will notice that he didn't fail to put 15 after 14. Can we go to the next slide and show you? Let me show you what I mean. So at the end of 14:30, when it says, Come now, let us leave. So he's just told them he's going to leave them, go to his father's house, don't be troubled. Gave them some more information, and we get to the end of chapter 14. Come now, let us leave. They're about to walk out. And then As we go to 18, verse 1, it says, then Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So why has the editor, if this indeed is what's happened, put in 15 to 17, supervised by the Holy Spirit, so as to illustrate, clarify, create with imagery an understanding of what's gone before? Because that's the context we'll we'll be studying when I read John 15. And it's this. The John 15, the vine imagery, is a picture of what's just gone on with the walkout of Judas Iscariot. Judas, the fruitless branch, has been cut off in the community, and then Jesus says this remarkable words, and we'll read it again together in a minute, you are already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Interesting language to the disciples that remain after Judas has done the walkout. What does he mean? Well, the word clean and the word prune are from the same root. That's why even in your reading in chapter 15, you'll see clean and prune used interchangeably. And what he's saying is through the cutting off of the fruitless branch, Judas, we have a community that is cleansed ready to receive the teaching from the Saviour that will keep them on a discipleship journey, on a fruitful journey with Jesus. That is what's going on. That's why I said we've got to start here and then bring this back into our journey now. Otherwise, we'll overread perhaps what we call, forgive me, the soteriological implications. In other words, does this relate to my salvation? Does this relate to my salvation? Could, Could I be cut off? Could I fall away? Greg Has wrote a book about that. Is that what this passage is talking about? Or is it talking about immediately what Jesus is facing amongst those guys? Someone's just walked out the room. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, "Abide in me." If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. You're clean, you're pruned." of the words I've spoken to you, but there is one who's just been cut off. He's wandered out the room and his end is destruction. We know the story about Judas. It's a tragic story. I don't want to overread the passage. I don't want to shoehorn it into my understanding of saved and lost. You might want to do that because there are are flavors in there, but I think sometimes we can push the text too far. We can push the text too far and make it a doctrine rather than an instructional word to help us on our discipleship journey. Let's be clear. God is loving. Right? God is kind. The will of the Father is this that no man or woman should perish. Lord is not going to push you over the edge into hell through a little bit of doubt and a little he is longing for you to have a full life. Can I just say to you it's a bit of a spoiler The passage I'm about to read says the the phrase, complete joy. Don't you like those two words? I want to say to you and put it to you this morning that Jesus is more concerned with the two words, complete joy, than he is with the phrase, turn or burn. You see, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, and he loves us. Are you hearing me, church? And so when I read John 15 in a minute, notice a God who is wanting us to remain in the vine. And I know you know what that means. Loads of you have read this passage. And the only way to do that is to be a true disciple. Let's look at that in John 15. I hope that made sense. Wave at me if you understand where I'm going with this. Thank you. John 15. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes or cleans, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Look, 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 look. This is the nature of Jesus. He's talking about burning branches, but his heart is love. So let's not overread the text. There's a warning and a promise in this, but it's not so dichotomous, so divided in two ways that everyone is vulnerable. If everyone was vulnerable in what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, Jesus' cross would be inadequate. I'm someone who really believes in the power of blood. We sung about it today. I've seen people who were Satanists get free in a moment. I've seen people who were terrible, terrible sinners Get forgiveness and mercy in a moment. They may weep for weeks, months, years after it for their sins, but the blood is powerful, isn't it? What a wonderful Savior. Let me read on. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay his life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. This is my command. Love each other. As I've said in quite a rambling way at the beginning, chapter 15 here looks back on the events of chapter 13. Judas has been cut off, a fruitless branch. Ramsey Michaels in his commentary on John points to this idea of the grammar and the phrasing in the Greek being a cleansing work in a community between those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who are true disciples and those who are not true disciples. If you think about this in John chapter 8, sorry, in Matthew, no, John chapter 8, apologies, John chapter 8, there is a point where the Jews believe in Jesus. It says that in John chapter 8. The Jews believe in Jesus. And then immediately after that phrase when the Jews believe in Jesus, John 8:30, 30, verse 31 says, to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are my disciples really. Now the Lord is not seeking the church to make converts, the Lord is seeking to make disciples. This is why we're being intense about DC together. We know of people, and this is not contradicting what I've just said before, we know of people who've fallen away, don't we? Don't we? And sometimes we wonder why people fall away. And we push the theological ideas down one another's throats. And we say, this is the reason why people can fall away. Or this is the reason why people can't fall away. And we're at odds with one another theologically. And again, it's a fruitless debate. Because you can have proof texts either side of this. And it misses the end goal of Jesus, which is not to make converts. It's to make disciples. So if we're thinking about people walking out on Jesus in their faith journey... What are we asking for? Are we asking, were they saved in the first place to be Calvinist? Or did they not persevere to the end to be Arminian? Or are we just simply saying, Jesus is looking to make true disciples. Jesus wants people who will persevere to the end and then they'll be saved. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. I think sometimes Jesus is looking from heaven at our theological understanding of the Bible and thinking, I don't give a monkeys about the stuff you're falling out on. I just want you to read my word and believe it. I'm sorry if I'm simplifying things. But if Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, there is implications for all Christians, regardless of their theological background. I must. Remain in him. I must abide in the vine if I'm going to be saved. Does that mean the Calvinists were right? Does it mean the Arminians were right? Do you give a monkeys whether it's you might not even know what that means, what I'm saying there? Or is it the centrist position, a Baptist, where we're we in the middle, don't upset anyone? I, I don't think Jesus really cares which flavour you are. He just tells us quite directly, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now You don't have to overread that. You don't even need to bolt your favorite theological idea to that. He's just told us plainly, abide in me. Remain in me. Do you know the word stands firm? Some of the translations say persevere is exactly the same word as John 15 where he says remain in me, remain in me. You might have abide in me, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Do you know that the word abide continues multiple times? I can see 11 at the very least. In John 15, Jesus telling his hearers remain in me, remain in me. It's the same word That he puts out in Matthew 24, whoever remains in me to the end will be saved. Don't do a walkout like Judas. Don't walk away from the only one that can save your soul. Don't turn your back on Jesus. We're not talking here about walking out of church or a leadership team or a family, though these things can be painful for those involved. We're talking about walking away from the Lord. And Jesus is very clear. Without diving deeply into the arguments that surround this text, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Listen, I know that we're in the last days. I know. It's not a personal opinion or a prophetic unction. The Bible tells me we're in the last days. Why do I know we're in the last days? Because in the same passage I've just read to you, where Jesus is talking about signs for the ends of the age, where he's saying, he who perseveres to the end will be saved, he talks about signposts pointing to the fact that the Messiah is coming back. And one of the obvious ones to me, and there are many in that passage that, again, we could go down the rabbit holes were, is that the times of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. When David Ben-Gurion took on the state of the nation of Israel again, it had been about 2,000 years since the Gentile rule of Israel had existed. Jesus said, if you want to know when I'm coming back, you can interpret the weather, you lot. Listen to this. This is when I'm coming back. This is the weather that you will see when I'm coming back. Israel will be back in the land. Now, some people might say, "Well, it's a Romans 11 thing that Stephen Paul says. When the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then all Israel will be saved." Romans 11: 25 to 32. To a degree, yes, but no. That's talking about salvation. And the totality of who will be saved when a deliverer will roar out of Zion and will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This deliverer will roar out of Zion. I think this points to the return of the Lord, actually, for me, as I read the text. When he roars, when, he roars, when the trumpet's played, you could again, you could debate text, couldn't you? You could tear a text to pieces. And we fall out over shy in the church, and it's pathetic. At the end of the day, the nation of Israel has, has not had Israeli occupation and rule for 2,000 years. And I believe the end times are a time when Israel, back in the land, governing themselves as an independent state. Jesus said it in Luke 21. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Did you notice that he's not talking about doctrine of salvation, Romans 11? He's saying physically, Jerusalem, the place, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, not the Jews, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When that is over and the Jews are back in, you can look up. Because your redemption's drawing near. So that's one of the many reasons I know why Jesus is coming back soon, church. And it's really important that we take notice of that because you cannot dance around Jesus' language in, in Luke twenty one twenty four. Jerusalem, the place, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles is fulfilled. Then, then the return of the Messiah is at the door. Listen, I, I'm a bit geeky like this. Other other signs in Matthew 24 as to why Jesus' return is drawing near. If you Google this, and you might be nerdy like me, and start to track earthquakes, famines, wars, on a line graph, as far as records went back, and I did this, I'm that nerdy. I did magnitude six earthquakes there were two and above, because there were too many otherwise. Do you know that in every case, it's a virtually identical line, because Jesus talks about birth pains until the birth of the return of Jesus. Birth pains get closer together before the birth. If you track any one of those markers that Jesus lists, since records began, it goes like this. I'll draw it your way. Do you think the birth's coming? The Lord is at the door. So why does that relate to this that we are reading now? Because there is a call for the church to recognize the times that they are in right now. The Bible says, in the last days, perilous times will come. I believe these are really perilous times. I remember being in Catherine Nolan's house and Greg Haslam was sat on a chair, the former pastor of Westminster Chapel. And he was telling a story about one of his sons in school. And the teacher was saying, which of you children has a dad who does a dangerous job? I don't know why I said dad, forgive me, ladies. It was obviously the time we were in. Which of you has a dad who has a dangerous job? So all the kids, well, mine's a construction worker, mine's a soldier. And I think it was Andrew. I think it might have been Andrew. I don't know. My memory fails me on that. Put his hand up, my dad's got a dangerous job. Okay, what, 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 what does your dad do? He's a pastor. What's a pastor? He's like a vicar. Huh. Everyone laughs. And then Greg, I remember Greg's face, he turned and looked at us all, because we were all a little bit like, oh. Greg, Greg and his inimitable I said, it is a dangerous job and then told us why it was. And we were like, yeah, Greg's right, we're wrong, because Greg's communication was very potent. We didn't say anything, but it was our faces when we were kind of thinking, yeah. And Greg said, "You know, it is a dangerous job. Because you've got a target on your back. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Why do I say this? Well, all the last maybe two months, I've had pastors all over the world that know me. That's not fanciful, that's not self-indulgent or self-interested, send me text to encourage me in the faith. Privately. And I got this one on Thursday. Hey, mate, this is a guy who served with Christ for All Nations. He's now living in Yorkshire, believe it or not. Senior man in Christ for All Nations. Hope you're well. You came to my mind recently praying for you. I just felt to share the phrase with you. You ready for the phrase? Stand strong and hold on to the faith. Now, he didn't know what I was preaching this week, stand strong and hold on to the faith. No walkouts, no back and down would be my interpretation of Max's message to me. Stand strong and hold on to the faith. Now I would say that's a word for you this morning. You need to know, the Lord is saying to you, stand strong in your faith. These are not easy days to be alive and be a believer. I remember my dad, it's one of the most vivid memories, you know, everyone has a hero. In the riots, he's, he's my rock. you remember this, dad? Behind a riot shield, dad would go out every night and he would come back safe and all the people that went with him would come back safe. And he'd sing behind, he's my rock, he's my fortress, he's my deliverer, in him will I trust. There is a standing that he did in that moment in spite of all the petrol bombs that were going on, the imp that pictures what God is calling you to do today. Dad testifies to the fact that God was literally putting the bombs out as they were going off at him. What am I showing you this image for? Because Dad would be better at illustrating it for me, but he stood and people started getting behind him and he was saved by the Lord. I want to encourage you, because I, mean, I think you've even got a picture on the wall with that text, haven't you, from the Bible. He's my rock. He's my fortress. Because that scripture is about standing firm in God's strength. And whatever bombs or rocks you've got being thrown at you now, I would say to you, like that image of Dad behind his right shield, stand strong today. Stand strong today. Do you know, as I said to you before, that image in Matthew 24 of, he who stands firm to the end will be saved, literally means remaining under the heavy load, bearing up and enduring. Remaining under the heavy load, bearing up and enduring. There's lots of links I could point to in the scripture with this. In 1 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul the Apostle says how stressed out he is And he can barely stand the pressure any longer. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Same word. He's under so much pressure in the ministry that he has to send Timothy along to find out what on earth is going on in that community because he can hardly contain it anymore. He's scared they're going to lose their faith. That's how pastoral Paul the apostle was. Concerned that they're going to walk out of their faith. Stand firm, hypermeno, remaining under the load. That's the word in Matthew 24. Whoever stands firm to the end, whoever remains under the heavy load, bearing up and enduring under it, because Christians, you end up under pressure. If you're living a true walk with Jesus, if you're a true disciple, which is the goal of Jesus' teaching here, you will be under pressure. And Jesus said it's a guarantee in this life, you will have trouble but you take heart, I've overcome the world. I, I, I am passing through and I want you to recognize you are just passing through too. That word hypermeno in Matthew 24 is the same, listen to the word for the word in John 15, to, re, to remain or to abide. It's the word meno. Can you see how they're linked? It's the same thing, to abide, to remain, to stay, to wait. And the Lord is calling disciples in front of him to remain on the journey. He's calling you and me to remain on the journey. In the original story, this teaching to the disciples beats on Jesus builds on Jesus' commitment to come again to take them to the father's house in John 14. It also builds on his promise that the Holy Spirit would be sent to help them remain, the one called alongside to help, and it literally calls them to remain by following his teaching. Now, I'm on to the last page out of five, and I want you to know that at the end of this section now, I want you to pray with me at the end of it, and I'm not going to say what the end is, because I want you to see it from the text as we walk through it, but I want you to make a serious decision to corporately pray with me at the end of this, that you with, our, with me might respond to the text in the right way so that we might remain walking with the Lord. I'm not talking about insecurity with relate, relation to your salvation, I'm talking about Jesus best for your life. Okay, understand that. Jesus has said 11 times, meno, 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 meno. Remain, 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 remain. Verse 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We sometimes draw those out and put them on bookmarks. This is how to get what we want out of the Lord. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit Showing yourselves to be true disciples. Jesus is looking to create true disciples. He's not looking to create people who can do magic tricks. Just because we can have the supernatural and miracles and other things. In June and July, the blind eyes opened for me. That doesn't mean I'm intimate with the Lord. Did you hear that, church? Did you hear that? Because we've, we've, we've glorified the supernatural in the church for too long. And I'm telling you, it's the easiest thing that i do. Because it's not me that does it. God is not calling the church to just have power for mission. He's calling the church to intimacy, to be a lover, waiting for his return. And I I want to encourage you, with me, into a journey back towards lost love. When we sung that song, Worthy Is Your Name, beautiful voice of Emma, beautiful band song. And I'm thinking to myself, what would this sound like in a revival season? as we're singing it. Worthy is your name. Just the adoration of Jesus, the love for Jesus that is potent and deep. Because I I would put it to you, because the Lord's challenged me privately. There's a senior leader in Elam when I was a kid, general superintendent, I went to him. Hey, the Lord's speaking to me. It was prophetic, but without any sense. He's telling me that he's restoring lost love in your life. And this general superintendent was very gracious with me, a young upstart who had a touch of the spirit of the prophetic. He said, you're right. He is restoring lost love for God in my life. What a humble man. Glenn will be able to guess who that was. Jesus is looking to create true disciples. And true disciples, true discipleship involves more than just believing Remember what I said to you in verse 30 of chapter 8 earlier in this gospel. Even the Jews believed in him. But to the ones who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. This is why people fall away. They come in and they understand the cross and they understand the mercy of the Lord. And they get the message and they even believe. I've seen so many people in the streets that have had miracles, amazing miracles, and they know it's true. And yet they still don't choose to to follow Jesus as his disciple. I once had a hairdresser. She was a beautiful, beautiful young woman. She used to dance in nightclubs on podiums. She was incredibly good looking. I would always have Rachel at home with me when she'd come and do this um, mobile hairdressing. Not that I was of any temptation to her, but, you know, just to keep my heart right before God. And she told me this story about how she had a hip like this. Even as a dancer. And she was about to have a terribly difficult operation. And then her mum's pastor went round to her house, prayed for her, and the hip turned. She was healed. And the doctor said, What happened? She said, The pastor prayed. So I'm looking at this hairdresser. She's cutting my hair. I turned to her and said, So why are you not following Jesus now? You've had an incredible miracle. You know Jesus is real. Why are you not walking with him? I was that direct. I could tell she wasn't walking with him. She had a policeman boyfriend. She was out clubbing it, doing all the other stuff every night. No interest in the Lord. And you know, the, 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 the voice came back to me. I know it's real, but it costs too much. Did you just hear that? Well, at least she's honest. I can work with honest. But she articulated the heart of a lot of people that following Jesus is entirely different to believing in Jesus. Jesus, when he had people with him, he would say, come, follow me. Because he knew he wanted to take them on a journey to conform them to his likeness, which is always going to be the same. You see, following Jesus is about establishing a true Ongoing relationship with the Lord. To remain spiritually united with Jesus in a life-sustaining relationship, that involves two words, maintaining and nurturing that relationship. Now, I'm not talking about persevering to sustain salvation. I'm talking about what an authentic, truth-filled salvation looks like. Someone will be concerned with maintaining and nurturing their relationship with the Lord. So we come to the climax. How do we remain? How do we nurture and maintain that life-sustaining relationship with Jesus? Jesus said in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love, menno. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Did you hear the motivation of the Lord? He wants his joy to be in us. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to tell my face I've got that joy, 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 joy. Down in my heart, where? But it's one of the fruits of the abiding presence of God in our lives as believers. So Jesus wants us to have joy in life. Jesus was anointed with joy above his companions. How do we get it, Jesus? Well, it's this. The precedent of Jesus' obedience was that he was motivated by love, okay? Let's not get the cart before the horse. A lot of people will read John 15 and they'll say, I know how to remain in his love. I know how to be a true disciple. I'll just obey his commands. And then I'll remain in his love. If I'm just good enough, I'll experience his love and then maybe I'll have that joy. The Lord is wanting us to fall in love with him again. And out of that love, it's natural obedience. You see, any human relationships, whether it's father to a child, spouses, child to a teacher, if you want to sustain the harmony of a relationship, you adapt to one another. There's a great story with Artie Kendall telling us about missionaries in Israel, I think it was, and there was a dove that kept coming into the roof space of the missionary's house and whenever they would argue, the dove would leave. But when the house was peaceful, the dove would come and settle back in. And the Lord spoke to the mystery couple and said, you've got to adapt to the duff. If you want my presence with you, if you want to sustain the harmony of relationship, live in harmony with me. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony in the way that I want you to. Just let me ask you this question. Can you imagine complete joy? Just close your eyes a minute. We are just we Try to imagine for you as an individual what complete joy might look like. Now some of you are thinking of other places you could go to. Others are thinking about if I didn't have this in my life. The Lord wants to give you complete joy. We don't experience it. As Christians, you can open your eyes now. We don't experience complete joy because we're seduced by the temporary pleasures of this world, and we often fail to enjoy a red hot pursuit of the Lord Jesus by abandoning to the cares and lusts of this world. We're so distracted, and you'll hear preachers like me talking about Netflix generation, all this, and then all the guilt trip falls on our shoulders. I think, well, yeah, I've I've watched too many box sets recently and I've not spent enough time in the word and prayer. And I'll go home and berate yourself for not being good enough for God. That, none of that is, that's the cart before the horse. You see, we don't need to know how to live if we know the one who is life. That's why Jesus said you have no need that anyone teach you because the Bible says that God would write his law in our hearts And that law points to the spirit in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's writing, the spirit coming living within us, the inner compass, the inner guiding light, the one called alongside to help. And as as we gain an intimacy with that one we love, nobody needs to say, don't watch that, don't spend too much time here, make sure you spend time in the word, make sure you spend time in prayer. Because the true disciple that has understood Jesus teaching his relationship first enjoys the very things that God's asking us to do. I know there's going to be loads of hands up here now. Put your hands up if you understand what it is to either worship or pray and enter into a place of bliss in that moment. Bliss, literally bliss. That's the fuel that makes you obey the commands. We don't obey the commands to enter into his love. We enter into him, he into us. And through that, we are motivated by love to obey for the end time purpose of joy. We obey his teaching out of love for him for the purpose of experiencing complete and true joy. I, I, I've i said it many times. I may have even said it in this session. Revival is falling in love with Jesus again. That's the simplest way I can describe it. Revival is falling in love with Jesus again. And I want to put it to you because As I said to that senior minister in Eland, that general superintendent, that incredible humble man of God, you've lost love for God and God's restoring it to you. And I didn't have the sense to know who the man was that I was speaking to. And he graciously said, yes, I have. If he, one of the most godly men I've ever met, can lose love for God, I want to ask you the question because I know the Lord's been challenging me because it's never about ministry or output. Do you love me, Stephen. That's all I want from you in this life. I want you to love me. And out of that intimacy, do life well. So will you ask that question? Because I'm asking myself today, where am I with my love for God? I'm not talking about your performance as a Christian. I'm talking, do you love the Lord? Not at a distance, because love is an action, isn't it? It motivates you to intimacy. Intimacy. The first time I fell in love with a girl, and Rachel, I fell in love with her more, so don't fall out with me for was a girl called Christina Cornelius. And she lived in Croydon. And I, I, I experienced for the first time as a 14-year-old what it is to be energized by love. I wrote, I mean, which 14-year-old boy does this? I wrote six or seven page letters before we had emails. I was willing to drive, I couldn't even drive. You know, to Croydon, as it would crawl to Croydon. Because love motivates to be with someone else. So I want you to join with me now and pray. I want you to pray that the Lord restores my heart and yours to love him. Now, it may not come all at once today. It may take years for this flame to increase. But let's pray that when the bridegroom returns, because we've talked about the return of the Lord, that we have love-struck eyes waiting for the Lord. Because that's the only way to do the Christian life well. If we're in love with him, we'll naturally live out our discipleship. Amen.